Well, welcome back to the Powell View Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Powell Butte Christian Church in Central Oregon. It's great to have you join us today. I normally uh, thank our executive producer, Lisa Welly, who makes sure that the podcasts get up and running, and uh, our uh, technical director, Steve Pittman, uh, for getting all the tech stuff ready to go. Today, I get to also uh, thank my daughter, Donovan. Uh, she has gotten into the podcast um, industry herself and um, has bought a microphone for a computer and has lent me this microphone, said I can use it uh, for these podcasts so I don't have to go into our worship center and use the big microphone. I can now just stay in the uh, comfort of my own office and uh, present you the uh, material that we will be uh, going through on our Sunday morning services this upcoming weekend. We are going through the book of Luke the Gospel of Luke, and um, we've entitled the, the whole series The Year of Our Lord. It's been a, an exciting one so far. Uh, this is our seventh week in it, and uh, you are welcome to go back and check out any of the other podcasts that we have been doing uh, to kind of catch you up to speed. As I open, I, I, I love the story about these two Texans who, um, they, they both had ranches, and they, they were kind of trying to impress each other uh, with the size of the ranches and what they had on those ranches. So one guy said, well, what's the name of your ranch? And and the response was, well, the name of my ranch is the Rocking R, ABC, Flying W, Circle C, Bar U, Staple 4, Box D, Rolling M, Rainbow's End, Silver Spur Ranch. Well, his buddy was very impressed. He says, man, that sounds huge. How many head of cattle do you run? And the guy says, well, not many, because very few of those cows survive the branding. I I can I can see why if that's if that brand has to be all of those things. Now I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but as disciples, you and I have been branded, in a sense. Really, uh, we have been called by Jesus to follow Him, and He's put His name on our lives. Right now, sometimes the the process of getting branded um, takes a lot. Um, I I know I know people who. They are getting saved out of such a kind of a rough and horrible lifestyle that uh, it's almost as if God has to spend some extra time branding them. Uh, I don't know if you've watched the cinematic series called The Chosen, but um, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's a great series and it does an amazing job at portraying Jesus's call on the life of the disciples. Uh, and among those that Jesus would call to be his disciples was a tax collector who was hated by his fellow Jews, a fisherman who did not possess a particularly high level of education, but they had to work so hard to make ends meet. There was a political zealot, um, a guy whose chief concern was uh, to, to change the politics of his day. And then there were just ordinary folk as well. Those are the first followers of Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 5 this week, in verses 1 through 11, we're actually going to see Jesus calling those first disciples. There's going to be four guys that he calls here, and they are fishermen. They uh, are working class guys with minimum education. They're probably pretty rough around the edges. They probably needed a little bit more branding than other people do. But when Jesus called them, it it was definitely a call to discipleship. And it was a it was a lifelong call. That's really what I want you to understand. Uh, they were called to be in it for life. 
Now, just like those fishermen, when you and I become disciples, we get a branding on our life that lasts for the rest of our lives as well. You see, the call to follow Jesus is all-consuming. It's all-encompassing. It's designed for us to be in it for life. And so today I, I want to read from Luke chapter 5. If you'll take your Bible, if you have it there at home. Luke chapter 5. And uh, we're going to read through the entire passage and then go, go back and comment on it. Starting in verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats uh, left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. And this is, by the way, Simon Peter. Um, uh, Luke eventually uses that name as well. But um, here he's just called Simon. And asked Simon to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, when he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything, and they followed him. So there it is, the, the calling of the first disciples. It will be these guys that Jesus calls who are going to leave their old life behind. They're going to embrace the teachings of this, this man that they believe to be the Messiah. They're going to learn to walk in his footsteps as people would do when they had a rabbi. They would learn to walk in the dust of their rabbi to follow in his footsteps. They're going to be branded in a very real way. And it's going to be for life. They're going to forever be known as the disciples, right? And one day they're going to be part of God's movement um, in the lives of believers in the church to go out into all the world and turn the world upside down. In Peter's story here, Simon Peter's story, we actually see some great principles of discipleship. There are four things that I'd love to point out as we see Jesus calling these first disciples. The first principle is based on the fact that there was nothing in Peter's life, in his experience, in his wisdom, in his knowledge that discipleship was based on. It, it's not your past or your wisdom that discipleship is based on. All Jesus was asking for was obedience. That still is all that he asks, obedience. You see, Peter and his friends, they'd been trying to catch fish all night. This was their job. This was their expertise. They knew the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee like the back of their own hands. And they, that night, just like they had so many other times before in their life to going out on the lake, they had relied on their own experience. They relied on their own wisdom, their own know-how. But tonight they, they had come up empty. They had come up empty. See, if it's based on what we know or our experience, 
then we have to admit that sometimes, sometimes we can be successful if, if we're relying on our own wisdom, our own experience, our own know-how. But there's going to be there's going to become a time where, by relying on our own our own expertise, that we're going to come up short. We're going to come up short. So Jesus says to Peter and the guys, "Hey, Peter, why don't you try this? Why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat?" Like, that's going to make a big difference. I, I'm wondering if Peter is thinking to himself, yeah, yeah, because that cubic feet of five cubic feet of water over on the left side of the boat is going to um, uh, be somehow different from the uh, five cubic feet over here on the right side of the boat. Now, you know, that's only 15 feet away from each other, right? And yet Jesus is saying, I, I don't want you to rely on yourself or your expertise or your know-how or your experience I want you to obey me. Now, Peter at first pushes back just a little bit. He says in verse 5, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. In in other words, this is not going to work. You have no idea what you're talking about. We, We do this for a living. But then he says, but. And I love that because even though he can rely on his own know how and expertise, he does realize that that actually has gotten him nowhere, that he's come up empty. So because of that, I, I don't think this is going to work. But, but if you ask me to do this, I will. I will obey. Though he has no confidence in Jesus's suggestion, there is something inside of Peter. And I believe that Jesus was able to see that in Peter. There was something inside of Peter that made him say, I don't think it'll work, but because you say so, I will do it. You ever wonder what you could accomplish for God if you were just willing to trust him and not rely on your own expertise or know-how or experience, that you were just willing to trust that God knows what he's doing and he's asked you to do this, and so you will get out there and you'll try. Who knows what God could do through you? God wants to do some powerful things to his disciples. And though he might rely on the fact that they have boats or they have nets or they have fish and loaves and things like that, God ultimately just says, you know what? I just want, it's not going to be on you. It's not going to be on your expertise. Will you just trust me and will you obey? Disciples are ones that may not understand what God asked them to do. They may actually have a different opinion uh, maybe, maybe in the past they've experienced something a little different, but they still trust the master to obey. They, they trust him enough to obey what he says. Principle number two, it's found in, in Peter's response to this miraculous catch of fish. Because once Peter saw what just happened, there's no other explanation. He falls on his feet, uh, on, uh, on his knees right there in front of Jesus and he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Which, if you think about it, it's kind of odd. Because you'd, you, you might have thought that Peter would just be in, in amazement, in wonder. Like, whoa, that's amazing. How did you do that? Or, if um, the way that the, the Chosen depicts this, um, the, the fact that Peter had a great debt, you, you might have thought that he would be very grateful what Jesus did for him. But instead of being grateful or or being amazed, 
we see this principle that discipleship is based on at work, and that is it's the principle of worship. You see what Peter does in his words and his actions. In that, we see a willingness to worship because he recognizes Jesus for who he is. He falls in worship at Jesus' feet. That's his actions. And his words, he says, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinner. Now, you'll figure out if you listen to this podcast long enough that I'm kind of a word geek. I love how there is sometimes interplay between words. And here's a, a wonderful example. If you go back to verse 5, Peter calls Jesus master. Now, this is when he's protesting, saying, uh, we've, we've fished all night. We've caught no fish. Master. Now, that's, that's a Greek word, epistates. Epistates is a word that you would call your teacher, your master, your teacher, one who has knowledge, one who deserves respect for their understanding, okay? And, and Peter has no problem acknowledging that Jesus is a, is a smart guy, a, a good teacher. He calls him master, teacher, epistates. It's a sign of respect for somebody in authority. However, after the fish have been caught, Peter uses a different word. When he falls down in worship on his knees, he says, get away from me, Lord. And that's a different Greek word. It's the Greek word kurios, which means a supreme ruler or Lord, right? So what does Peter see in this miracle? Where he once saw Jesus as a good teacher, a, a man to respect, um, a master. Now he sees something a little different. Now he begins to see the divine in this man. He sees God, right? Where once there was just a respect for a good teacher of God's word, there's now something much greater. There's a realization that Jesus isn't just a good man who deserves respect. That he's something more. And it will be Peter later on in Jesus's ministry who will confess He'll be the very first one to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And when he does that, Jesus will commend him, telling him that, Peter, you didn't come by this truth from mere man. You got this from God directly. So here is a divine revelation, a definite revelation through this miracle of the miraculous fish catch, right? And now Peter's eyes are open. He sees Jesus for who he is. He's not just epistates, master. He is kurios, supreme ruler and Lord. So he falls down on his face because he is in the presence of his God and he worships. Discipleship is all about obedience. It's all about worship. But the, the third principle that we see is also in what Jesus says to what, what Peter says to Jesus. We see that discipleship involves confession and repentance. See, Peter says, get away from me. I am a sinful man. He acknowledges his sinfulness. Now, what sin is Peter confessing? We don't know. You kind of have to read between the lines. Uh, in the chosen, they depict Peter having a kind of a, kind of a, a, a life that was not very God-honoring. And there was a lot of things that he did that were questionable up to this event of his life. And so maybe he's confessing that. Some people believe that he was confessing his arrogance when he kind of looked at Jesus, when Jesus said, cast your net on the other side and, and thought, Jesus, you're, you're dumb. Um, that's just not going to work. Um, I, I've tried this. I know what I'm doing. But whatever it is, 
he sees the importance of saying, I was wrong. I'm confessing my sin. I'm repenting. First John 1 9 reminds us of the importance of confession. John says, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. So they say that confession is good for the soul. But confession is also good for those who are learning to be disciples. Those who willingly acknowledge that they can't do this on their own, that they have times where they fall down. Those are the ones who are actually open for somebody to come alongside of them and help them and give them power to overcome those weaknesses, those sins, those shortcomings. So that's confession. Regarding repentance, you know, if we jumped ahead in this chapter uh, to verses 27 through 32, you're going to see how Jesus um, is calling another guy, a a man named Levi, who we know as Matthew, into being a disciple as well. And you'll see how Jesus ties in discipleship with repentance. Uh, We read in verse 57 and following, um, 57, 50, no, 27, sorry. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. So Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held this great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. See, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, when you have this idea of being self-righteous, then you're not willing to confess and to repent of uh, any wrongdoing. But Jesus said, If I'm calling you to be a disciple, I want you to be to acknowledge your sin to repent of that sin, to confess it so that I can come in and begin the work of cleaning you up. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Jesus said. So like Peter, Matthew was called to discipleship. But in order to be a disciple, just like Peter, he needed to repent, to leave his old way of life, to embrace what Jesus had in store for him for the rest of his life. You see, we who are disciples... We who are branded for life, we we have to make confession and repentance a regular thing. Now, one of the elders here at our church, he and I were talking about um, this very thing this, this last week, about how God doesn't just want our worship on a Sunday morning. He wants us as worshipers, all of us, not just <clears throat> on Sunday morning for a couple of hours. Excuse me. Worship is more than what people think it is. Worship is not what you do in a church service. Worship is how you live your life, your willingness to admit uh, that you have blown it, to confess your sins, to repent, so that God can then do some amazing things in your life as his disciple. See, willingness to repent is such a huge part of worship. So finally, once we step out of obedience, in obedience, not out of obedience, out in obedience. And once we acknowledge um, the worthiness of God in our worship, and once we make a practice of repentance, it's then that this fourth principle comes into play with discipleship because Jesus then changes us. It's all about transformation. 
Now, I entitled this sermon, Discipleship in it for life. Now, like I said, I'm a word geek, and that's a play on words. Because, yes, when we follow Jesus, we are in it for life. It's a lifelong call, right? Now, if that was all that we meant by that title, that would be enough because of the worthiness of God and the power that uh, he demands uh, being our God, uh, our loyalty. We are in it for the rest of our lives. We are in it for life. However, and here's where the play on words comes into play, I want you to see as we study this last principle that when we decide to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, there is a reward for us, folks. There is fulfillment in our life. See, when we say we will be a follower of Jesus, when we step into discipleship, there will be a transformation. There will be a transformation. We will, ha- we will be, ha- have a different relationship with God. We will have a different identity. We will have a different eternity. We will have a different um, purpose in our life, both in this age and in the age to come. You see, what Jesus promises us in John 10.10, 10, he says the thief comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy but Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That doesn't just mean life in heaven after we die. It means an abundant life here on earth and an eternal life in heaven. Folks, we are in it for life. We are in it for the life that he brings to us when we become his disciples. We have a new relationship with God. We have a new identity in Jesus. We are no longer defined by our sinful nature. And it means that we've been given this new purpose. And we see it there in Peter's story, verse 10 of chapter 5. Jesus says to him, you want to catch things? You like catching things? You, you think that's a, a worthy aim in life? How about I change it up a bit? And from now on, I'm going to allow you to catch men. Because that's much more fulfilling, Peter. And immediately, Peter understands how amazing that purpose can be for his life. And so he and those with him, James and John, and presumably his brother Andrew, pull their boats to the shore. They leave everything and they follow Jesus because they want this new purpose to be part of their life. See, Jesus transformed not just Peter's relationship with God. He transformed his whole purpose of life. You know, I'm so sad about our culture these days, how fast we have sped towards devaluing life we, we've devalued life on both extremes of life, uh, whether we're talking about a, a, an unborn baby in the womb or wh- whether we're talking about somebody who is at their end of their life in, in a care facility. We have devalued life. Right now in Portland, there are billboards that are going up from a group that defines itself as an anti-natalist. That means they're against being born. It's, they call themselves, uh, they describe themselves as a philosophical and ethical stance against human reproduction. They consider human reproduction to be an irreversible, unnecessary, indefensible, and enduring form of harm. The billboards that are up there now in Portland, Oregon, they say, stop having kids. Even though God says, be fruitful and multiply. They say, stop having kids. It's, it's an enduring form of harm to bring somebody into this world. And what I think is even more horrible, there's, there's a billboard that says a lot of humans wish 
that they were never born. See, these people are reflecting a value that is totally anti-biblical, totally against God's will. It's this idea of devaluing human life. They're even devaluing their own life. They wish they had never been born. Why? They have bought into the lie. Jesus said, the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. And boy, he's doing a great job of it. Because in our culture, life, life that's supposed to be precious, supposed to be exciting, supposed to be vibrant, supposed, supposed to be something that connects us with our God, life has lost its meaning in our culture. There is no purpose. But here's the good news. Because if you're a disciple of Jesus, for you, God gives a supernatural enhancement to your purpose. Because there is a God, because God is a real entity, because there is an eternity, because God loved the world so much that he decided to bridge the gap that sin created, because God values you, then as a disciple, you matter. And your purpose has been transformed. Now, maybe you're in a place, as you're listening to me today, where you're ready to receive that transformation. You want life. Well, that comes from being coming a disciple. Life is given to those who begin to follow Jesus. In 1 John, John will say, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. A disciple is one that can enjoy a new relationship with God, who can walk in a new identity with a brand new purpose. Maybe you are listening to me today and you are sick and tired of the enemy's tactics telling you that you don't matter, that you're just a product of an impersonal evolutionary process. I'll tell you the truth. The world doesn't care about you. The enemy doesn't care about you. But God loves you so much that if you were the only person to have lived and to have sinned, he would have sent his son Jesus to die to pay the penalty of your sin so that he might have a relationship with you again and give you a different purpose in your life. Jesus was in the business of changing the lives of those who responded to him, who became his disciples. Yes, it meant that they would would confess their sins. Yes, it would mean that they would be obedient to God's will. Yes, it would mean that they would have a different focus of their worship. It would mean that they would admit their weaknesses and failures. It would mean that they would be dependent upon God as their source of strength and righteousness. But on top of all of that, Jesus would replace whatever they thought was worthy to bring them fulfillment in life. And Jesus would replace that with something that was true, the true source of fulfillment. Folks, the Bible tells us, and this passage is very, very clear. If you want life, both abundant life here on earth, if you want a renewed purpose and a sense of true belonging to something that matters eternally, and if you want life after death in heaven with God, you can have it. You can become a disciple of Jesus today. And Jesus promised all of his disciples that he would never leave them nor forsake them. He is with them. He is leading them on. He is encouraging them. He is, he is bringing about the fulfillment, the purpose that he came to bring to them. 
And we know this from Romans chapter 8, that nothing in this whole world can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in other words, if discipleship is something that you want, you can have that. All you have to do is, is ask God to come into your life, to forgive you as you confess and you repent, as you then walk in obedience to him and make him the object of your worship. He will transform your life. In other words, if you are in it for life, then you are in it for life. Boy, if you if you want to learn more about this, we would love to talk with you. You can uh, shoot me an email at uh, Trey, T-R-E-Y dot P-B-C-C. That's Powell Butte Christian Church, Trey dot P-B-C-C at Gmail. Uh, you can get on our website and send us a, an email uh, through the website at PowellButteChurch.com. Or swing by sometime and just let us know that you you want to talk to us about being transformed, becoming a disciple. We would love to be able to sit down with you and, and share the good news with you. All right. I thank you for your time. I uh, hope to uh, have you tune in um, next week as we continue our study through the book of Luke.